Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. We're pre-recording this episode for Tuesday, January 2nd, so happy New Year, fools. I hope you had some time to relax and are starting strong with your New Year's resolutions. This is your host, Vincent Chen, and I'm joined by Fool.com contributor Daniel Klein, who is connecting to the Fool HQ studio here via Skype. Hey, Dan, great to have you with us. Hey, Vince, how are you? Good, good. So, fools, Dan and I had a tougher time than usual nailing down (laughs) topics for this show. Uh, Given that it's the first show of the year, uh, we had the year in review not long ago. We wanted to kick off 2018 on a similar note, which means going high level and talking about the biggest trends investors can expect to see in the consumer and retail sector this year. Before we dive into that, I'm setting aside a few minutes here for you, Dan, especially because you're our resident cable and entertainment specialist. This is a big one. Right? (laughs) So, I know you wanted to to share your thoughts on the Walt Disney and 21st Century Fox deal that was announced a couple weeks ago. So I've worked my way through a lot of the breakdowns, the predictions for how Disney will leverage its purchases from Fox, especially the TV and film properties. You know, we're talking about Avatar, X-Men, classics like Home Alone. So if the deal goes through, we should start seeing Disney flex its new muscle by the end of 2018. What's your take? Well, it's 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 a huge intellectual property deal. You know, you mentioned some of those, and that there's just hundreds of other properties. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Die Hard, and just so many things that could be could be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Simpsons, Family Guy, uh, they Fox produces This Is Us for NBC. There's just so many different shows. And when you look at the ability to sort of exploit intellectual property, Disney is the king of this. So they already have an Avatar land, so that sort of brings uh, their theme park and their movie business more aligned, which is good. You know, and their ability to do spin-offs for their streaming services, to create you know everything from video games to to bed sheets to uh, to theme park to just Disney should be able to shore up its movie division, meaning right now they can put out eight or nine movies a year between Pixar, Star Wars, Marvel, uh, Disney Animation that are almost guaranteed hits. I mean, you mentioned Pete's Dragon. There are things that fail, or you mentioned it to me personally. Sure. But in general, they're going to be able to line up even more hits. This brings the X-Men home. So, you know, they'll be able to to integrate the X-Men into the, the greater Marvel universe, but also probably put out, you know, one or two, you know, maybe a, a group movie and an individual movie every year. So the box office potential for Disney is huge, but so is their ability to create television shows for ABC or to spin off things to their streaming network. It's, you know, that is the crux of this deal. And there are some other things. The, uh, the regional sports networks will bolster ESPN because what they'll be able to do is take the live studio shows that they do in those markets, cut back some of the cost of those by using national ESPN programming, but also have the local feel with reporters in those markets. And they should be able to get more bang for the buck out of each of those networks than Fox was able to with the, let's kindly call it, little-watched FS1, which is not part of this deal. Disney (laughs) won't be taking that. So this will sort of become a whole synergy for Disney built around just all this great IP with a nice little added benefit from the sports networks. Yeah. You mentioned the IP angle, um, and I think on my end, it really amazes me that at the beginning of last year, so uh, 2017, Disney had no streaming services to compete with Netflix <laughs> besides its minority stake in Hulu. But in the next year and a half, give or take, Disney will control 
uh, have majority control of not only Hulu, but two other offerings. So the sports-focused ESPN Plus is expected in early 2018. And then they have that Disney-branded option that is still in the works. And I also have a breakdown here of domestic box office receipts from the past three years. So if you add up the ticket sales for both Disney and Fox, the combined entity would have had an average 35% market share from 2015 to 2017. So again, gives you a sense of the scale and how how much uh, kind of strength they have in the industry. And there are going to be some regulatory issues here. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't shock me if they had to either sell off a stake in Hulu or or ha- have an agreement where they, they share control. Um, because Hulu and the Disney potential streaming service do have some conflict. Now, you could absolutely pivot Hulu to be more of the the live streaming channel service, which is something Hulu is, is going to offer. Um, but there is a lot of conflict. And on the movie side, the numbers are a little bit deceptive because Disney is probably not going to put out as many movies as Fox did. So it's it, there you're either going to see some movie production move elsewhere disney's going to cherry pick that division's going to get smaller it's absolutely going to put out the the movies that can make 500 million dollars at the box office mm-hmm. it's not going to put out the sort of bottom 30 movies that fox put out that on an aggregate <laughs> basis you know combined did a lot of box office sure. that don't make a lot of profit and don't lead to theme park rides because if you look at everything disney has been doing in its theme parks and i live in florida i'm a disney pass holder i spend a lot of time with the theme parks Basically, everything is being rethemed to a Disney character. So, you know, Epcot got rid of the Land of Energy. They're putting in a Guardians of the Galaxy ride. There, there was a, a bird exhibit at Animal Kingdom that's becoming an up exhibit. Like so, everything in Disney's world is moving towards this synergistic intellectual property model. Yep, and whether that's the theme parks or the consumer products or. Uh, things for television shows and elsewhere. All right, so that, I'm gonna that's I'm cutting us at around five minutes for that, um, <laughs> and then I'm gonna I want to move on to our main topics, which is those trends I mentioned for 2018. Um, so in the past month, I've seen write-ups from Shopify, Forbes, the National Retail Federation, and a bunch of other retail-focused publications that essentially lay out their predictions for major retail trends that will take center stage in 2018. So fools, there were three in particular that. Dan and I wanted to cover during the episode. So the first up, I'm dubbing this one the ongoing evolution of consumer convenience, which is our fancy way of describing the <laughs> omni-channel. So Dan, what form is omni-channel going to take exactly this year? So it's more than omni-channel because because omni-channel is the idea that a customer of a store can shop at home, can shop online, can combine the two. You can be in the aisle of a Best Buy and order a TV that gets delivered. Customer convenience is going to move beyond that. It, it's going to be everything from you know kiosk-based ordering in stores to predictive ordering to you know maybe Best Buy will have a masseuse that uh, gives you a massage while you're picking out TVs. <laughs> it's become a real be- and, and I'm kidding a little bit, but I think some of those things you know when you look at a high-end clothing store, they might shine your shoes while you're trying on suits um, because it's really moving to the model that as a customer. I don't have to leave my house. I, I've been shopping via Instacart. And in two Instacart deliveries, I can have groceries, I can have beer and wine, I can have whatever I want sent to my house. So to get me to go to Whole Foods they and, and walk out rather than, than do it through Instacart, 
they better have you know an improved uh, ready ready to eat lunch display or have a better coffee bar or be a place I can get a haircut or wh- wh- whatever other else it is. It's all be about consumer convenience. It's not just delivery. That's not just sort of curbside pickup. It's really anything you can imagine that's going to take friction away. So some of that stuff, obviously more experimental, but the the I think the key players here in terms of how a lot of companies are leveraging omnichannel. You think about the traditional initiatives like buy online, pick up in store. You mentioned curbside pickup. That stuff still has a lot of momentum going behind it. So I have some quotes and figures here from um, several companies that mention how uh, initiatives like buy online, pick up in store, or mobile ordering also have helped to accelerate their direct-to-consumer business or online sales growth. So the first one is... How many times have we talked on the show about how buy online, pick up in store not only gives customers the option of getting their purchase how they want, but also they end up in the store and they make another purchase and it adds the ticket size, right? So from Lowe's, the home improvement retailer, in their latest er quarterly earnings call, they said that flexible fulfillment, which also includes buy online, deliver from store, so that drove online comparable sales growth for them of 33% during the period. And then here's a direct quote from Chief Operating Officer Rick Dameron. So he said, from an execution standpoint, 60% of our dot-com sales are currently picked up in store, with 40% of those customers buying incremental product when they arrive to pick up their item. Another 10 to 15% is delivered from store, with the remaining 25 to 30% being parcel. And then another example from Tractor Supply Company, which Motley Fool analyst Simon Erickson pitched to industry-focused listeners back in October, 75% of the company's online orders were picked up in store during the third quarter. And Greg Sanford, which is who's a company CEO, he spoke at a retail conference in September. And his relevant quote from that presentation, he said, "Customers buy product online and designate to pick it up at the store." Now, what's also unique about that is they add another fifteen percent ish to that ticket when they come into the store. So it's not just they're buying what they found online, but when they get into the store to make the pickup, they find other things to purchase. And th- there's a challenge there for retailers. So I shop on Amazon a lot, and. I think it's fair to say that Amazon has sort of a shop in store feeling. When you check out, it shows you related items. Mm-hmm. It might dangle something in front of you that you purchased previously that you might need. An accessory or something, sure. Yeah. And most retailers, and in fact, any retailer, I would say, at least any major one, is behind Amazon in its ability. Walmart does some of it. Target does some of it. But it's not as as sort of well-honed. So, yes, when I walk into a Home Depot to pick up my order, there is every possibility I'm going to buy a Milky Way on the way out or a <laughs> bottle of water or a magazine. Or, you know, I mean, I'm probably not going to get tempted into buying like a lighting fixture you know it's it's going to be more of like a you know an incidental purchase but that's absolutely something that can be delivered online and you know when you look at some of this this convenience you know something like an Instacart or other delivery services it's not crazy to think that you know if you order $1000 worth of stuff from Home Depot and they're going to deliver it to you maybe that will come with uh, would you also like a pizza <laughs> you know like there's there's just so many ways you can skin this and we don't know what's going to work i think it's fair to say you know somebody like Walmart that's doing kiosks where you can pick up in store which in theory you're doing all your checkout so you're, you you may not get back into line to buy something else. That that may work. It may not work. Curbside pickup works in some markets. It doesn't in others. We're mm-hmm. in a great period of experimentation as well. Yep. And it's funny that you mentioned 
the the Milky Way, for example, because to me, <laughs> this is like the new age e-commerce version of putting candy bars in magazines and small ticket items in the checkout line in supermarkets and convenience stores to, to encourage incremental spending. And it's a very effective way to boost sales with what amount to very highly qualified in-store customers because they already made a purchase with you. They like what you have to offer. So when they show up to pick up their order or whatever it is, you know, you really have a chance. This is someone who you can really push that additional uh, item to, that accessory to, and it's working for a lot of companies. Yeah, and the challenge is doing it in a way that's not annoying. You know, if you're at McDonald's and they say, would you like fries with that? That's fine. But if they say, well, would you like a shake? Would you like an apple pie? Would you like a grimace mask? You know, it, it gets to the point where at some point it's annoying. So stores have to find a way to be subtle about this. And really, hey, I see you're buying a lighting fixture. Light bulbs might make sense. Or do you need some light polish mm-hmm. or, or whatever logical things? And you want that to be a subtle, low-key sale. Nobody has to sell me the Milky Way. I see the Milky Way. I feel like I've accomplished something with my day because I went to Home Depot, a store I'm totally not qualified to be shopping in, <laughs> and the reward could very well be a Milky Way or a Red Bull or whatever it is I buy on the way out of the store. And the same thing would be true from a, you know an Impulse magazine purchase at, at Target on the way out or, or whatever it might be, but it's it's a very subtle sale. They're, they're not pushing it at me. And both digitally and in stores – Retailers are going to have to find the balance of you know of making that happen. I see you're buying drywall. Would you like a you know a, a drywall cart? Makes sense. I see you're buying drywall. Would you, would you like to buy a desk? Doesn't. Yep. All right. So the next uh, the second part of this trend that I want to get your thoughts on has to do with fulfillment or essentially delivery expectations for customers. Basically, you know today we see that a lot of people are happy to only go as far as their front door to pick up their orders. You mentioned Instacart, for example. (laughs) Me. (laughs) Amazon has set a standard, right, where two-day service for Prime members, that became the industry benchmark for some time, but the company has also been expanding its one-day, same-day, and even one-hour delivery network to Prime members. And you have Walmart and Target. They both recently acquired logistics startups uh, in the past several months to improve their same-day fulfillment capabilities. So, do you think same-day delivery or two-hour delivery is going to be the expectation for consumers going forward? Because personally, I, I, I hesitate these days to place an order if I think the delivery is going to take too long. Here's the thing. I don't think it's going to be the order, the the ex- expectation for hard goods. If I'm buying a new, I don't know, uh, Kindle from Amazon, I probably can wait two days for it. If I'm ordering a sweater, I probably don't need it in two hours. Sure. So there are some areas like you know we're heading away for Christmas and I needed to buy a charging cable for my son and it was cheaper to spend the $3.99 extra on Amazon to have them one day deliver it than it was to. To, to get in my car, drive to Best Buy. So the mix of, of cost and convenience made that extra fee worth it. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see consumers demanding the ability to pay for added convenience in some of those areas. But when you look at groceries, I generally don't want to shop for groceries two days in advance. Sure. So if you talk about something like Instacart, part of my Instacart order is what am I going to cook for dinner tonight? Yes. So And because I'm generally ordering from Whole Foods, it's also what do they have prepared at Whole Foods that I'd like to eat for lunch today? Mm-hmm. So 
my Instacart $35 order, because I'm a premium member, so I get free delivery if I, if I spend $35, it already includes maybe $12 in sushi and, you know, 8 to $15 in whatever, you know, meat or fish I'm going to cook that night, mm-hmm. plus whatever accessories. So I'm already at the order threshold. So it really becomes, I could place two or three Instacart orders a week and not really be spending more money. Yep. And the challenge for all of these players is going to be making it so the stuff that may, you know it sending me small things a bunch of them with high margin delivery makes sense sending me certain things in, in same day or two hour delivery that are harder to deliver take more room in the car that's not going to make sense so it's really uh, finding the right mix for all of these chains yeah and i think it's the optionality behind that overall so let's move on to our second prediction, uh, I'm summing this one up as showrooming goes full circle. So if you think back to 10 years ago, if you were following retail stocks at the time, you probably re- remember that a lot of big box stores like Best Buy and also department stores, they complained about showrooming. So that was when customers would go to their local brick and mortar store, they test out the products that they're interested in, and then they go on- go online and buy it at the cheapest price. So the traditional retailers fought this by reducing their own prices to be more competitive. They also did things like price matching. But we're looking at 2018 now, and the showrooming idea has really come full circle because companies that have a physical footprint are happy to showcase their products in stores, let customers try things out, but then when they go online to buy, hopefully they're buying it from that store's online portal. And there have been lots of examples of retailers changing the look and feel of their physical stores, shifting the focus from having enough inventory to really showcasing their products in the best possible light. How have you seen, Dan, some of these efforts manifest themselves? Well, it's been a mixed bag mm-hmm. because a lot of retailers, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about JCPenney. JCPenney talks about omnichannel and the idea that I could go into a store and I could try on a shirt, figure out it's not the right size, and I could seamlessly order the correct size from their website. The problem is execution on this requires customer service, and that's an area where as much as I like JCPenney, sometimes they are lacking. Sure. There are, there's no employee in the store to easily facilitate this order. And their website's not super mobile friendly. So, you know, there are problems with it. But if you look at what Nordstrom is doing with a standalone showroom store, you want it to be almost like a high-end car buying experience. You go in, you say, yep, I'm looking for, I don't know, uh, Slides. I'm going to the beach. I, I need I need a, a pair of uh, flip flops or slides or whatever you want to call them to wear, and they can show you some examples, and either virtually or some some real inventory. You could try them on, and then you can get whatever it is you're buying. Hopefully, it's more than that. It's also a bathing suit. It's also a floppy hat, a towel, whatever the package is. You've seen it all in a showroom, and then exactly what you want gets sent to your house. You don't have to carry it with you. You don't have to worry about it, but you know what you got. It's a very high-end experience that has to be customer service driven. Mm -hmm. The examples that I found and really jumped out to me, so the first one, and this is not a public company, but it's Warby Parker, which I think is pretty recognizable. Uh, We did an interview uh, with one of the founders last year. They sell glasses. Um, it launched as an online startup, but they opened up their first retail location a few years later in 2013 and now has 65 locations in the US and Canada to showcase its products. You know, you walk in, you try on as many different frames as you like, and that's part of the 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 appeal for them. And then a similar example is Bonobos. So they also started online only first and 
they started opening small locations in 2012 where customers could, again, they go in to get to try suits and shirts. And I visited a location uh, for Bonobos in D.C. not too long ago. And once you know the size, the fit, and the color that you want, it's all showcased and available for you to try on at the store. You place your purchase, but then the order actually gets delivered to your home. You're not walking home with anything or uh, in you know in a bag. So... I think this model is the future mm-hmm. because, you know, you talked about two things. So eyeglasses, I, I wear glasses, as, as everyone can see, and fit is exact. So the old Warby Parker model of they send you three different tester pairs and you, I forget the exact number, but they send you some tester pairs and you try them on sure. to get, it, it's an unwieldy model because I don't like mailing things back. It's a pain. <laughs> I have to figure out how to do it. There's just no easy way to make that easy. But if I can walk into a store and they have, you know, generic gray glasses in all the different sizes and all the different styles and I could pick out and find ones that are comfortable and then get a deal on my prescription because glasses can be you know go to a lens crafter for my glasses it's five to six hundred dollars with reasonable frames so if so if I've already tried them on and the same is true of a suit you know you and I both know that you might be a certain pant size at one store and a certain pant size at another store mm-hmm, absolutely and no, you, there's no consistency to it. So if I can walk into a, to a Bonobos, try on everything, and then feel comfortable that what I'm going to order is going to fit me, I will do that time and time again. You know, you've noticed I wear the same two shirts. I have 30 of each of them because I don't want to have to think about this or stress about it. I would absolutely go try on things once to be able to then order stuff for the next year. Mm-hmm. The last examples that I'll give here uh, coming from more of the traditional space, but think about the sports apparel leaders. So you have Nike, Under Armour, Adidas. They are also all in a similar boat in that they've opened flagship locations. You know, these are huge stores. They span several floors. They have custom shoe workshops. There's half basketball courts, tracks that <laughs> attract customers and get them to interact with the brands. Now, in terms of how well the the throughput and the sales at these locations, um, it depends on the store. But ultimately, this is a way for them to interact with those consumers, build up a little bit of that brand loyalty, kind of showcase their products and and you know how cool their products are, and then go from there. So, sorry, go ahead, Dan. Well, the the sort of mega destination model is as much about branding as it is about you know the actual throughput of sales in that store mm-hmm. you know we we have uh, in in Orlando which is about two and a half hours from here there's a night there's two different Nike warehouses a clearance center and a factory store I have no idea what the difference is but they're both sort of palaces to Nike with all all sorts of stuff and you know that's a model you can't have a thousand of those mm-hmm. what you could have is stores like that that are kind of a destination for sneakerheads and then you can have your store within a store with the sort of mixed virtual reality uh, ability to look at a sneaker and see if it's in your size and order it and try on a test pair that may not be the exact color scheme you want so it's going to be blending all of these different things because i don't think we're at the point and we might get there in a few years where consumers are comfortable with any of the purely digital ways of buying things that require fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I might buy a winter coat or a sweatshirt or something I absolutely know what, you know, that the size range is going to be pretty forgiving online without looking at mm-hmm. it. 
But if I'm going to buy sneakers, I wear a 10 in Nike, a 10 and a half in New Balance, and a nine and a half in some other things. Yep. So if I can walk into a store and get some of that, I don't need to leave with sneakers. And it just keeps coming back to, yeah, maybe someday there's going to be a little laser scanner that can get everything perfect and send you sneakers that are exactly fit for you. But we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So overall, you know, takeaway for this one, you know, whether you're getting, whether these companies are leveraging new technology or it's just a shift in basically how these management teams look at their physical store presence, I think the companies are managing to turn what was once seen as a huge weakness in terms of their physical store presence, um, you know, big weakness in their cost structure. They're turning into a better way to connect with the customers, build that brand loyalty, and then offer them also some expertise or one-on-one customer service that I think helps stand out from the online channel. All right. So um, wrapping up here, uh, we have a few minutes to cover this third trend. And this one's closely related to everything else we've talked about so far. And that's the idea that brick and mortar retail comes in all shapes and sizes. So this one I'm separating from the examples we already discussed in terms of the retail showcases, because the end goal is a little bit more of a sustainable means of geographic expansion. But if you're a company with for example, over 90% penetration in the U.S., uh, you have massive stores in every major metropolitan area. Your next goal might to, might be to go small and try to establish a presence in more dense urban markets where your big box store is not feasible. So, how is this kind of playing out in terms of companies uh, playing with different formats for their stores? It- it's kind of a holy grail, and it hasn't always worked. So Walmart tried this uh, a couple years ago with Walmart Express, and the idea was if there's a Walmart every five miles, the Express stores would sort of fill in the middle so you wouldn't go to CVS or, or the local grocery store. And it wasn't a big enough game, and they closed them. They sold a lot of them off to Dollar General. But Target is now using sort of call it a micro store, even though it's a 20 to 25,000 square foot store. They're opening locations in cities, in places that identify with the Target brand, but weren't going to be able to or not be that willing to get in a car to drive out to a a full size Target. Mm -hmm. And they're tailoring the merchandise for people who live there. So if you live in Manhattan, you are probably not buying 64 rolls of toilet paper at a time. You don't have any place to put them. (laughs) So in terms of inventory, that store is probably stocking four packs and six packs and single rolls of paper towels and smaller amounts of trash bags. And these stores are being organized so grab-and-go items or the things people are most likely to need quickly are at the front. So maybe in New York, umbrellas would be included in that mix or or something else you might just quickly want to get, get in, get out. Mm-hmm. These smaller store models are going to work, but you see a lot of people are testing them. Whole Foods, which is now owned by Amazon, had its Whole Foods 365, which is a a smaller, lower frill store meant to go in in a more dense urban environment. And some of them have worked. Some of them haven't. You know, Amazon is using sort of small call them bookstores, but really they're Amazon experience stores where, yes, you may buy a book, but you're just as likely to play with a device or get exposed to the new Echo, and it's not so much about retail sales. And I will say the one advantage all of these chains have right now is 
even the successful malls have vacancies. So there is a lot of ability for an Amazon, a Walmart, a Target, or whoever it is to go into a, to a, a mall company or a, a retail development and say, I want that space, but I want a short-term lease. I'm not going to commit to 20 years. I'm not because this is an experiment and I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah, I, if you uh, if we can jump back to the Target example uh, in the latest earnings call, COO John Mulligan he actually talks about how adaptable they need to be when they're designing these new locations. So he says, "We're also investing to reach guests in new neighborhoods and elevate the experience in all of our stores. To reach new densely populated neighborhoods, we've completely changed our approach to choosing the location for our f- small format stores. In the past, we had a relatively rigid prototype for store size and layout, and our real estate team focused on finding sites that would accommodate that prototype. Today, when we find space available in an attractive neighborhood, we custom design a store that can fit the available space. These stores generate high sales productivity and higher than average gross margin rates, driving strong returns on investment. And for the smaller group of these stores have now been operating for more than a year, we continue to see very healthy growth in both traffic and comparable sales. And then there, another example I have here is huge underdog, Sears. They're hoping for a miracle. The company, <laughs> is, they're testing new locations Focus solely on two of their stronger departments, so it's mattresses and appliances. So they've opening they've been opening these in the past six months, and hoping that maybe this will help right the ship for them. But uh, you know they're pretty far down the road already. So uh, last couple of minutes here to recap our picks for 2018: the trends, you know, the consumer convenience and how omni-channel is growing in scale, uh, the brick-and-mortar retailers showcasing their products, and then also how their store formats are taking new forms. So looking at this list, including uh, a lot of the other trends that have been discussed elsewhere, like for example, likely to be more M&A activity, more acquisitions and deals between online and traditional retailers in 2018. We saw a lot of that activity last year. Um, What I see connecting everything that you mentioned earlier as well is experimentation. Yeah, we don't know. And I think that's the important thing. I don't think there's anyone who believes we're going to move to a storeless society where where at least in the next 20 years, we won't grocery shop out, we won't buy clothes out, there won't be malls. I don't think that's what's happening. I think we're seeing a retail contraction where some chains had too many locations, some had too big, and that's going to... But I do think there's still a place for physical stores, and that might be varied concepts like best buy has revived itself largely through store within a store you walk into a best buy and there's more than just best buy you can get your cable you can see an apple store you're going to see a lot more of that and it's not all going to work and it's not all going to work in every market i live in a downtown walking market where some of your retail choices are, are limited so if a target came in it would probably do very well even though there's a target a few miles away that might not be true where the fool office is where there's a whole foods and other things you can walk to all within that area so you're gonna see just a lot of experimentation a lot of sort of different ideas and some stores that open and go away pretty quickly all right well Thanks a lot, Dan, uh, for hopping on today. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks, Fools, for tuning in. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Fool on. Fool on.